must come to an end. Isn't that right? All good things must come to an end. I don't know when I first heard it. It's a fairly enduring principle of life that you hear all over the place. All good things must come to an end. I remember a particularly painful moment realizing that when I was getting to the very last episode of one of my favorite TV programs, The West Wing, when this inspirational president and his team, they've been running the United States of America for for eight years, and he's just jetting off into the sunset. You've been really caught up with him. It's really exciting. Wow, an amazing thing they've done. And then he flies off into the sunset. Even the most inspirational presidents become nothing more than a footnote in history. You work hard at something. You invest yourself in it. You throw yourself into it. And then it it just stops eventually, doesn't it? You fade away. It might outlive you for a while. But actually, at the end of the day, all good things must come to an end. Is it worth it? Is it worth the cost? Perhaps there are things in your life you think that, let's not be too extreme about something, let's not throw everything I've got into it, because one day all good things must come to an end. Only it's not always true, is it? And in fact, the message of Christianity is that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all good things you have in him will never come to an end but they keep getting better and better. The greatest presidents might be nothing more than a footnote in history, but even the lowest Christian is part of something that will last forever. And because of that, Paul says at the end of our passage in verse 58, you can throw everything you have into working for the kingdom of God. You don't need to worry. Investing all you are and all you have in your life in Christ with his people will never be a waste. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians is, well, you can try and sum it up in terms of loving your church and trying to live a holy life that pleases the Lord. Living as a holy people, it's hard, it's painful. And when you read 1 Corinthians, you realize that the church in Corinth really didn't do a very good job at it. And so what's the answer? What's the answer to doing what Paul wants us to do? Paul says in this great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, look at your life through resurrection spectacles. See everything through the reality of the resurrection and what it means for your life. Realize that for the Christian, not even the grave makes your work redundant because the grave doesn't make you redundant. And I'm sure you can see the logic in that. If Christians will be raised to live forever with God, then there is absolutely nothing that should make us half-hearted or unstable as we follow Jesus. How can we be moved? How can we put off this great life when we know we will be raised to glory? Can you see how that because the resurrection is true, your attitude towards your life in this church, your life together as one of God's people changes. Maybe it feels like a chore. Maybe it looks like foolishness or a waste of time to unbelievers around you. But time spent investing yourself in a resurrection-fueled project will never, ever be wasted. So it might be your attitude to the church prayer meeting, or to midweek groups, or to -to one-to-one Bible study and prayer fellowships, or to striving for purity and church unity to loving one another in the way Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, trying to build one another up, 
all of those things can feel like a burden. But if you're living for another world in glory, then suddenly you realize it's all worth the effort. And that's a pretty strong argument. I think on logic grounds you can see that that works, doesn't it? Does that work, I think, on logic grounds? I think you can see why Paul says that. But before he gets there, Paul knows that he has to make resurrection something that isn't just an abstract thought you have. He has to make it concrete. He has to put it before your eyes and say, this is what it will be like. This is what resurrection means. Paul says, don't look at your life through the spectacles that people around you give you, through your friends or your colleagues or your teachers or the media. Don't look at life through those spectacles. See your life through the lens of the resurrection. And then nothing should be able to stop you living wholeheartedly for the glory of God. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All good things must come to an end, not when you trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul builds our resurrection spectacles by making three things about the resurrection really concrete for us. He tells us three glorious truths from this passage. Firstly, he speaks about a new body. Secondly, he looks to a new age. And thirdly, he rejoices in a new hope, a new body a new age, and a new hope. So we'll start with the new body. Obviously, we're picking up from verse 35, but it's worth just saying what Paul has said so far in chapter 15 to understand why he's saying what he says. And of course, he's opened chapter 15 by talking about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, this is of first importance. This is the thing that you need to know. He's told us about the gospel and about life after death. And the thing you realize as you read it is this isn't a kind of hallmark card hope about heaven. Generally seeing people you love after you die. Isn't it a nice thought? You know, that Paul's talking about, oh yes, you know, they're up there, this thing is going on. No, Paul is saying this is not what the Christian hope is. The good news upon which Christians take their stand is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crushed by the judgment of God in the place of sinners and raised in a physical body from the dead. I don't know what you assume as you walk through the doors of the church this morning, but please let me disabuse you of the notion that the Christian hope is that good people who try hard get heaven. No, the Christian message is that sinners who don't deserve it get resurrection and an eternity with the living God. Not white wings, clouds, and cream cheese but bodies, solid ground, and a feast. And Paul's been explaining all of this in this chapter, and he's saying that should really make a difference to how you live. Do you see, if you really are a Christian, he says, you should live so that your life looks pathetic to someone who doesn't believe there is resurrection happiness for the people of God. The decisions we make about how to live our lives, how to spend our money or our time, how we commit ourselves to any number of one of the moral issues, there is no life after death. All of that looks idiotic, Paul says. But of course, Jesus was raised, and so will be his people. Do our lives look like it? 
Now, the Corinthians often didn't live at all like their holy calling as Christians demanded it. And we might speculate that perhaps Paul is hinting that if their lives looked no different whatsoever from the world around them, then they they need to think, have I really believed this gospel at all? Or at the very least, if their lives don't look much different from those around them, they're not thinking enough or they're not thinking rightly about the future that is theirs in Christ. And so Paul needs to get them resurrection focused. And that brings us then to verse 35, to this question. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? This isn't a genuine question about process. This isn't like a child asking, I'm really excited, what's it going to be like? The way Paul phrases it here, this is scathing. This is someone who thinks the idea of resurrection is absolutely ridiculous. And they're trying to point out their scorn for the idea of resurrection by saying, what a pathetic idea. These bodies going on forever, what a ridiculous belief. And, you know, some of us more than others perhaps look in the mirror and go, the thought of this going on forever? What a terrifying prospect. What a horrible thought that this thing just, just like this will go on and on and on. And Paul's answer is, in one sense, you're right. That is a ridiculous belief. Our current bodies, as they are, are not fit for life in a glorified new creation, enjoying the presence of God forever. They are incompatible with it. But you're foolish, Paul says, if your objection to the resurrection is that you laugh at the idea of a resuscitated corpse. That's, that's the kind of thing that they were thinking. We, we, we might think about perhaps Frankenstein's monster. You know, the same flesh and blood, just with a bit of extra voltage. But Paul says that's foolish. And the word fool is quite important in 1 Corinthians. Back in chapter 1, foolishness is, is what things look like when you don't take into account the power of God. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness. To laugh at resurrection in this, for these reasons is basically saying, I don't think that God has an inexhaustible power to do whatever he wants. What a foolish thing to think. And so this whole section of this new body kind of revolves around verse 38. Look at verse 38 with me. God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, we'll get back to that, he gives its own body. God does what he wants. And he knows what he's doing. You think that the raising of the dead can't work? You think that it's a ridiculous idea that these bodies are just going to go on forever and ever, just as they are? It's so far away from what you conceive, and perhaps you're sat there and you're worried. You're thinking, I just can't get my head around this concept of resurrection. Don't worry, Paul says. God has sorted the details, just as he always has done with every physical form in existence. And so Paul appeals to some everyday experiences. First, he talks about plants, back in verse 37. And he talks about seeds and plants. And perhaps what the Corinthians had in mind was the idea of, you know, cutting uh, flowers off from the root and sticking them in a vase and just kind of hoping they're going to carry on like that and maybe try and replant them in soil afterwards. Perhaps that's what they were thinking about, the resurrection body. And if they were, that's, that's a bit silly because, of course, that plant will wither and die and wilt and fade and not be able to go on anymore. Paul says, don't think about the resurrection body like a flower being put in a vase. 
Think more like the relationship between a seed and a plant. You see a seed, a small, lifeless, bare fleck of dust in many ways. When you look at the seed, you can't see anything of the flower or the stems or the leaves that come from it. Where I live, there are a lot of oak trees around. And you look at this acorn and you just think, can you see anything of the oak tree in this acorn? And yet, when this dies, when it's, when it's sown and put in the ground, from this raw material, God brings a plant or a tree of much greater beauty and glory. Verse 39, another observation from experience. We see that flesh is different amongst different species. Humans and animals, birds and fish, all have different bodies, each appropriate to their God-given purpose. And it continues. He, He says there are bodies that work on earth and there are bodies that work in heaven, and each has a different splendor. Verse 41, even the sun, the moon, and the stars have different things to impress us. Each of them works brilliantly where it belongs. And so Paul's argument is quite simply, God in wondrous variety makes bodies suited to their particular. From the clod of earth to a sunbeam, from a starfish to a supernova, God does what he wants and he knows what he's doing. He makes everything to fit. And it's like this with our resurrection. He's, Paul's trying to say, let me try and give you something concrete, something physical. God will make the body just right for an eternity in glory. However, verse 42, what is coming is as different and unknown as the plant is as different and unknown to the seed. There is continuity, of course, This acorn, if I went out and planted it, would become an oak. The the seed leads to the same plant that the seed is from. Chris will still be Chris in the resurrection from the dead. And, And that's why Paul has spent so much time in 1 Corinthians talking about the importance of what we do with our bodies. Our bodies matter. It is me. It is you who will be raised. But there is an enormous difference as well. The seed is the raw material. And in verses 42 and 43, what Paul does is he describes the bodies that will end up in the grave and and kind of hints at the new body that walks out of the grave. Did you see the pairings as Gabriel was reading through it? It is sown, it is raised. It is sown, it is raised. It is sown, it is raised. And so what we'll do is we'll start by looking at those things which are sown. First of all, the body that is sown is perishable. These bodies of ours are fit for purpose. But in a broken world under God's curse, their fitness is distorted and their purpose is perverted. And so they exist in a state of decay and corruption. They are perishable. Even those of us in peak athletic condition feel the truth of this. These bodies perish. Our bodies groan under the weight of the fall. They are weak, they are wearing out and falling apart. And that's why they end up in the grave. Paul says we sow these bodies, we bury them in the first place because they're perishable. There is death and there is decay. Paul says next, these bodies are sown in dishonor, 
In sin, our bodies are not as they should be, and a corpse has no dignity or splendor. He says, it is sown in weakness. How often in life are we aware of our own limitations, our own inabilities to serve or do what we want because these bodies are weak? But a seed doesn't remain a seed forever. It is raised, it is raised, it is raised. Whereas now our perishable bodies are subject to decay and corruption, then we will be raised with an imperishable body, which decay cannot touch. Whereas now when our bodies die, they have dishonor, they will be raised with splendor suitable for life in the glory of God. And our weakness will be a distant memory, as our new body will have supernatural power. In short, Paul sums up all of this with the first half of verse 44. Our bodies are sown as natural bodies, that is, they're meant for life in an unglorified realm, but they will be raised spiritual bodies, that is, material bodies fit for supernatural existence in the new world, where the glory of God dwells in all its fullness. This is how Jesus rose. So will his people. So, a new body. Paul is trying to paint a picture to make resurrection concrete, to take it from out there to something you can see and really think about. But what is this body actually like? It's imperishable. It's full of splendor and glory. It's a spiritual body. What is the resurrection body like? I think the best answer I heard to that question was at my friend's daughter's funeral. Ian Hamilton was preaching on this passage, and he said, what will the resurrection body be like? Trust in Jesus, and you'll find out. I don't think we can really give a better answer than that. So that's the new body. But a new body is needed because we will live in a glorious new world. Just like a fish's body is made for water or a bird is made for the air, so we are given resurrection, glorified bodies, because we need to be fit for a new environment. Paul then moves to the second point we need to hear about, the new age that Christ's resurrection means for us. And this here really is quite mind-blowing stuff. So often... At least this, this is often true of me. Maybe it's true of you. When we think about the resurrection, we think, oh, well, Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in Jesus, so, you know, I'll just rise from the dead. Things will be as they are. And, you know, you'll rise from the dead. Things will be as they are. We think about it in very individual terms. And in one sense, that's absolutely right. Resurrection is, a, is an individual thing. But it's not right that everything else just kind of stays the same. If you're going to get hold of the resurrection in the way Paul wants you to, To know that good things really don't come to an end in Christ, you need to understand this. Jesus' resurrection has begun to alter the entire universe. And despite how that sounds, it's even more amazing than science fiction because it's true. A new age has begun. Look back again at verse 44. You can see that um, the Bible translation, I think, has helpfully divided verse 44 over two paragraphs. Partway through verse 44, Paul moves from speaking about our individual body at the resurrection to start thinking about the cosmic significance of resurrection. He has been speaking about our bodies after the fall, after decay came in and so on. But now he broadens his discussion. He starts talking about life in this created system more generally and, and that's really what these small and yet gigantic verses, verse 45 to 46, are getting at. 
Here in these verses, Paul is kind of heading back in his mind to Genesis 1 and 2 to give us his interpretation of what was going on in the narrative of the Garden of Eden. Basically, what we read is this. Adam stood at the head of an entire world order. This natural world. Paul says this natural world came first. God created it and it was good. But it was always only ever going to be preparation for a supernatural world. A whole new age of existence for the universe. Let me explain. Eden, it seems to be that Paul is saying, was never the end goal in and of itself. In the, one of the teenage groups at my home church in Enfield, uh, we did a Bible overview last year and we, we kind of structured our Bible overview by looking at three C's. Crown, crowd, and country. You see, Adam was to obey God and fill the earth with the glory of God and he would receive eternal life. He and all humanity would receive the crown of glory, ruling and reigning with God. The crowd would be a glorified humanity, And we would be in the country of God's glorified creation, ruling it with God. That seems to be what verse 46 is getting at. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first Adam was supposed to lead creation from a world of natural existence into the next of supernatural spiritual existence. But he failed. And all creation fell with him. And of course, the whole Bible is the story of of God seeking people back to bring creation back into that joyful relationship with him. And so Adam is the head of the natural world existence. But since the fall, in Adam, we are all born to die. But God was not done. He wanted the last Adam to bring about this supernatural world. The last Adam, verse 45, a life-giving spirit. Jesus, of course, is that last Adam. And when he was raised from the dead, he became a source of indestructible life that is needed for this glorious new world. And he became the source of that life for all believers. And so just as Adam stood at the head of the natural world of existence, so Jesus stands at the head of the spiritual, supernatural, glorified world of existence. And in this new age, the presence and power of God will be enjoyed perfectly. I might have lost you there. This is quite heavy stuff. I've probably not explained it as well as I could. Maybe Let me just summarize this point. If all you think about when you think about the resurrection that Christianity talks about is an individual thing, then you won't get just how thrilling Jesus Christ is. When Jesus rose, he began a new world of existence, a new creation that has begun and one day will come in all its fullness. And if we're in Christ, we are already a part of it. Yes, we still live in this present age. Yes, we see, verse 49, we're still waiting to be raised and bear the likeness of the man from heaven, but we're also part of a new age of power, of glory, of immortality. We have been raised with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Christians, we live sizzling in the tension between these two ages, between the now and the not yet. And Paul wants us to realize it. One day this glory will be all the universe knows 
but even now we're part of it. And I don't know, maybe you think, I could get a bit bored of living forever, you know, eternity, sounds like a long time. And you might think like that, and you're like, why do I want to really be a part of that? All I think I would say to you is, well, that's just because we're not quite there yet. We're not in those new bodies that are ready for an eternal life in glory. And when you are there, you'll laugh that you ever thought it could be less than paradise. A new body for a new age, thirdly, gives us a new hope. And Paul here starts getting really excited as he thinks about what is going to happen. Verse 50, he starts off with a summary of what he said so far. Perishable flesh and blood cannot inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. That's kind of summarizing his argument so far. And then he enters into one of the most epic speeches I think you'll ever hear. He wants to leave you celebrating, punching the air in triumph, thinking there is nothing that you can't do. Do you know the kind of speech I mean? Perhaps think of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or, you know, Winston Churchill's, you know, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall prevail, we shall not flag nor fail, you know, the kind of thing. Oh, I'm sorry to lower the tone, but my kind of big epic speech is that guy at the end of Independence Day. You know, when he's given a speech to get the drunk fighter pilots to go and uh, fight the aliens. You know, that kind of thing that, yes, yes. Well, whatever that speech is for you, whatever rousing oratory you've heard that gets you punched in the air, sort of put it down a notch and put this bit here from 1 Corinthians 15 to your mind at the top of the list. Paul is lifting our eyes to that new day when our bodies will be fitted, the new age will have come in full, and we will take a step forward into a happily ever after that makes Disney look like a Greek tragedy. As Paul is writing to a Christian church, of course, we can hear what he's saying as his words to us. The Holy Spirit addresses us with these words. And so to preach on it now, I'm going to do something slightly different. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to add in some comments to try and explain, as we would when we're preaching, try and explain what Paul is saying. My comments aren't an attempt to improve upon Paul, but they're just trying to to teach the meaning of what he says And I'm just going to read it to you and imagine, though, as Paul is addressing us here, and I would say follow this in the Bibles as I'm going through from verse 51 so that you know what's the word of God and what's just the word of Chris. And hopefully this this way of preaching it to you, you will really hear what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Listen, I tell you a mystery. There is a day coming, I don't know whether I'll be alive dead, but I do know we will not all sleep. Some Christians will still be alive when it happens. We will not all sleep, but we will all Christians be changed. In the smallest conceivable moment of time, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet when God announces the end, it will happen. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. God's power will envelop us, and while we will still remain us, we will undergo a huge transformation. For this perishable body of ours must clothe itself with the imperishable. With that which is free from degeneration and corruption and disease, this mortal life must be clothed with immortality. And on that day, 
when this perishable body has been, by the sublime power of God, clothed with the imperishable, and this mortal life has been saturated with immortality, then the saying that is written, the hope and joy that God has promised his people from the earliest times will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. On that day, all the effects of the curse and fall will be swallowed up. All those who are Christ's, surrounded and bounded by the covenant and promise of grace, will stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, in arm with a grave behind them, and one voice declare aloud, Death, you have lost. The bully of death lies vanquished at the feet of God our Saviour. Death has been swallowed up in victory. We and all those whom we have loved and lost in Christ whose bodies were frail and full of decay and weakness, will with perfect strength dance and celebrate with ever-increasing joy in God. And this banner will forever wave. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So even now, even when it hurts, we can say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Since the fall, death has been like a scorpion. The sting of death is sin, and that scorpion's tail pierced all of us because the power of sin is the law. God's law demanded that we die for our sin, and it was potent because we are all law-breaking sinners who deserve to die. But if we had someone take it for us, pierced in our place, drain the poison dry and destroy sin forever, we would have victory. So, thanks be to God. He gives us that victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't cheat death. Jesus beat death. And we stand in his victory. Because Jesus has been raised, all of this hope is ours who trust in Christ. If you are a Christian, this is your future. Therefore, dear brothers, beloved London City Presbyterian Church, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Let your love for the church and lives of holiness overflow with excess because you know that your labor in the Lord Your hard work and suffering for the sake of Christ are not in vain. A new body for a new age gives us this new hope. All good things must come to an end, not in Jesus Christ. Amen.